This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hey, friends. I'm back with Mike for another episode together talking about getting our off-grid infrastructure set up here on the homestead. I'm really hoping that some of the stuff we can share with you guys today will be helpful to you before you jump into a similar adventure. We can kind of share some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't, and maybe some of the things that we wish we had known so that we could have planned a bit better for at the start. So yeah, Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. All right. So we're going to talk about infrastructure today. There was a lot for us to really do and handle. Um, I think we can start, though, with one of the things that actually went really well and smoothly. And it's also one of the things that most people are really interested in when we tell them that we're living off grid. And that would be what our internet situation is. So, Mike, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, you did most of the research on it and came up with the best possible solution, which is Starlink. And it turned out to actually be not only the best possible solution, but it's better than any internet I've ever had in in any residential situation. Yeah, I can agree for sure. And this has been kind of a long process coming because... Even prior to buying this homestead a few years ago, when I was looking for the farm that I had in Goodlettsville, I was looking at some properties that were pretty remote and off-grid, and internet was definitely an issue for that. At the time, there was only things like HughesNet and Viasat for satellite internet, and they were really slow, really pricey. They, They capped your usage, and it just wouldn't have worked. So I also work a remote job, and I know a lot of folks out there, if you're thinking about homesteading, you might be thinking about remote work also. Or even if you're not, you're maybe thinking about having an online store for things coming from your homestead or maybe having a YouTube channel and trying to monetize that as a different source of income for for your farm. And so, yeah, having good internet is really huge. And Starlink has been amazing for us. Um, There is an upfront cost with purchasing the equipment, um, but honestly, it's worked out really well. The price that we're paying per month is pretty comparable to what we were paying back in Tennessee for just regular internet. And like Mike said, it's been really great, like no downtime whatsoever. Um, They have implemented some like usage caps, I think, because some people have been abusing it, maybe just downloading movies or something, but we haven't been hit with any sort of cap. um, So it hasn't impacted my work at all. Yeah. All winter long, we we had an accumulative of, of, of about 10 feet of snow and we had multiple days where there there was no visible sky like skyline you couldn't see stars at night during the day you couldn't see the sun it was just pure snow and clouds and we never lost signal and the thing that i liked most about it being the one that does most of the the construction and setup and stuff around here is that it took longer to unbox than it did to actually plug it in and get a signal Yeah, it was very easy to set up. And then also one of the things that we always tell people about is that um, very handy for us being here with the amount of snow we had is that there's actually a built-in feature with the little satellite dish that you put, you know, it's out on top of our solar shed. It will actually sense like snow or ice buildup and it will pull extra power. You can turn that setting off if you don't want to allow it, but I don't know why you would, but it'll pull extra power to heat up the face of the satellite and melt that off. So whereas... Mike would have to go out and check our solar panels to make sure that they weren't getting covered up with snow and blocked out with that. We never had to deal with that with the satellite dish, which is pretty nice. One for convenience and not having to worry about it at all, but especially since you might be putting your satellite dish up high somewhere to get better signal. So knowing that you don't have to like climb up there and clean it off all winter is pretty great. Yeah, that was very handy. (laughs) Um, So that's definitely one of the things for infrastructure that went really easily and really smoothly for us. Um, And now we can kind of jump into some of the stuff that was more back and forth. Um, So one of the things we really didn't think a whole lot about, um, you know, you think about solar power, you think about how are you going to get water to your place. But if you're buying a raw piece of land, access alone is going to be one of the main things that you have to think about. And when we first got out here, we had a rented skid steer. We had a friend come out and help us with that and cleared like a driveway for us. And that was great for the short term. But then as we started getting rain and snow, and that just turned into mud city for us, we quickly realized that like we were gonna have a big issue if we didn't address that prior to winter. And that really 
became a little bit of a stress point for us was figuring out how to deal with that. Well, our priorities quickly shifted to making sure that we had the driveway in a good enough condition that we could still get up and down it and it not be just slippery mud or, or, or slide off and, and get stuck. So we did end up hiring a contractor for that who brought in a big D5 cat dozer. And the reason why we did that is when we looked at how to build a road and I was doing all the research on it, there's, there's a lot that really comes into it that people don't really consider. And, and that that's the foundation of the road. And when you, you talk about spending money on something and it being a money pit, for example, the road could, could very quickly become a money pit if not done correctly the first time. You've got to dig down. In, in our area, there's about a foot to two foot of really beautiful dark topsoil, especially through the oak brush and the aspens and the pine and the juniper and pinion. When you get out into the sage areas a little bit lower, there's uh, not really that good topsoil. But the problem with that good topsoil is that it erodes and washes away very quickly once you uproot any kind of vegetation. So you got to be able to dig down and get to that good base layer, whether it be bedrock or clay or, or whatever it is in your terrain. And then you've got to shape it correctly so the water runs off properly and doesn't create washouts that then make it so you can't get up your road because you've got a big ditch all of a sudden the next day going across your road. And when you have those washouts, you end up losing a ton of material. And the the material costs are huge, especially right now with fuel costs to transportate transport that that material. And so we went with about 18 to 24 inches of three inch road base. We also figured since we were spending the money, we wanted to make sure the road was definitely wide enough that we could get any kind of equipment up here in the future, whether it be a well drilling rig or, um, you know, more dump trucks to bring in more material, whether it be gravel or concrete trucks. So if you're going to cut a road big enough for your normal truck or vehicle, and you're going to spend the money, the cost difference to just make that road three or four feet wider is negligible really. So plan on or think about that kind of stuff and think about what would I ever possibly need to get up here or down here or across to wherever your property is at and really try and plan for that because if you limit yourself you really end up again with a money pit and then a year two years five years down the road you're going to spend a tremendous amount of money just to get that equipment up to your place and have to you know, redo the road, you know, and then it it prolongs the project that that equipment was needed for. So really just think about that in advance. What's, what would I possibly ever need to get up here and do a little research? If you're, if you're going to drill for a well, look up well drilling rigs. How, how long are they? How wide are they? What kind of turning radius do they have? And plan for that in advance. So we did that. We put in a 14 foot wide driveway with, like I said, 18 to 24 inches of three inch road base. Three inch road base is basically, um, in our area, it comes from the riverbed and it's, it's a mix of different types of rocks, anywhere from three inches in diameter down to sand. And it has a lot of sand in it as well. And that sand is great because after you get it wet and you drive on it a few times, the bigger rocks start to pack in and settle and that sand compacts around all the different aggregate to really make a good solid foundation that's not going to just erode or wash away or even just vehicle traffic. You can't just go and put three, you know, crushed gravel on it, like three quarter inch crushed gravel, like you would see on a normal gravel driveway because the tires on your vehicle are going to push that out away from the the tire. So you're going to have a high spot in the middle and then a high spot on each side. Then you're going to end up collecting more water down the, the, the tire tracks, which is then going to pile up at some point and wash through to, to find its way out. So really 
spend the re- the time researching your area and the the dirt and the ground that you have and buy the right material and do it right the first time because it co- how much did it cost us for our road and <sighs> um, i hate to even say it it was about $16,000 and most importantly it was money we had budgeted $0 for a road we had thought you know we'll just cut a driveway and then later on, when we can afford it, we'll add road base, gravel, all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, it was that that hurt a lot. Yeah, that was that. That's really my. I should have known that, and and I did know that, but I I really didn't prioritize it enough. I thought you know let's just get it get get a path cut in. We've got four wheel drive. You know we can get up in there, and after we get some infrastructure in. You know, then 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 we'll put some money into a road, but but we end up in a situation, or potentially could have ended up in a situation where we couldn't get infrastructure in, or we couldn't even possibly get in, even with four wheel drive. So we had a few days where before we got the road in, and winter wasn't even here yet, but we just got enough rain and brief snow that melted off that we actually had to park the trucks at the bottom of the driveway and walk up because the mud was so bad. And yeah, and yeah, I can't imagine trying to haul water and stuff by hand up, up there so yeah well that and and the wear and tear in your vehicle yeah i mean the toyota it would have made it 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 would have gotten up but at what expense to wear and tear on the vehicle at, at some point things start to break and mud is is a it, it plays heck on your vehicles it gets packed into your suspension and it wears out all the joints and and uh, you know it, it it dries on the inside of the wheels and then when you get out on the pavement your your tires are out of balance and you may not feel it but they're just enough out of balance where your tires are now wearing out in half the amount of time that they should be so these 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 issues compound very quickly and i should have made the decision to budget for the road sooner so that's my fault and and just to be clear too that road for $16,000 it's a about 200 yards 220 yards of distance and 12 to 14 feet in width and like i said it's an 18 to 24 inch base foundation of three inch road base and we have not put the gravel the crushed rock on top yet and that's on purpose because you want to drive on that road base you really want to get it compacted down get that sand to work in between all the other aggregate if you were to to not drive on it enough, not pack it enough, then you put your crushed rock on top and eventually your crushed rock disappears. It just sinks right in and it gets is surrounded by sand, that sand too. You could rent equipment compactors, you, depending on the area where you're at. A contractor could bring up one of those big, you see them in parking lots, a big steamroller. It's got the big giant steel wheel on it. And it vibrates and it pounds that stuff down. So you could then come in the very next day and gravel it. But we couldn't get one of those machines up here because the road coming up about four miles of, of dirt and, you know, gravel road that, that, you know, bring a tractor trailer up here with that, that trailering that machine up here and then having a place to park it, turn around just wasn't an option. Uh, Financially, it would have been, it would have doubled the cost of our road. So we opted for just, you know, leaving the road base and driving on it all winter and this spring. And now we're looking at bringing in crushed rock. Yeah. So we'll have that looking nicer eventually. Um, and, you know, we, we knew we would have to put a road in at some point, but we just were hoping that we could put it off and prioritize other things financially first. But after the reality of that is so I would just consider, you know, wherever you're building your homestead, really looking at that, talking to neighbors, seeing what other roads are in existence already before you decide like do i need to throw money at this right away or can it wait um some of the other things for access you know we've talked in some of our other episodes about the snow and getting up up and down in the snow and what we did for that so we won't go over that too much but just things to think about when you're budgeting would be do you need to have snow chains for your vehicles here you know we definitely do um we also were really fortunate we've talked about our neighbors that we've become friends with and They've recently bought an old pickup truck with a plow blade on it. So that's going to be really helpful. And so we'll kind of trade off with them, you know, in exchange for us driving it and maintaining the roads. They put the money in for the equipment. So that's going to be really helpful in terms of access. Next year should be a lot less stressful, I think. Oh, absolutely. And 
And that goes back to that community that we talked about in the last episode is build that really good community. We've built a great relationship with the neighbors that live about two miles down from us and they're not living up here full time yet, but they want to come up in the winter every once in a while. And, and so again, like you said, they, they found the truck online and they put the money out to buy the truck and, and I'll put the time into fixing it up and keeping it maintained and, you know, the money into those parts and we'll park it up at our place because we're two miles up the mountain from them and plow down and now they have better access as well. So it's a great trade-off for them yeah, and us. Yeah, it's going to work out really well for everyone. So that's pretty awesome. Definitely get to know your neighbors. Um, so yeah, so access, I think that pretty much covers it. And then the next thing we were going to talk about was water, which is always an issue and definitely something we came to appreciate really quickly after we got here. Um, so having to haul water for ourselves, our animals, now the gardens as we get the gardens in, definitely something to think about and definitely had some challenges with winter as well for that. So, you know, you need to look at where you are. We, we don't have a well here on our land. It's probably going to be quite a while before we could even think about drilling a well. And we may not even do that if we just end up catching enough rainwater um, and snowmelt and stuff that, you know, if we don't have to put that money into the land. Uh, we, we might not do that, but um, hauling water, all the towns near us, you know, it's a pretty common thing. Lots of other people are hauling water. So you can buy a card at City Hall. Um, I think we're paying like $3 for 100 gallons or something like that. Um, but that's worked out pretty well. It hasn't been super inconvenient, but it's definitely like hard to do if you were by yourself. It's kind of a two person job. You need one person to like punch the buttons on the machine and the other person to hold the hose. Which we had some funny adventures with that <laughs> yeah. early on. We got some free showers <laughs> that, <Yeah>. that way. <laughs> we learned too that the meter on those things aren't very accurate. So if you're feeling like well, what happened to us our first trip for water was a 55-gallon drum. And you punched in 50 gallons. And at about 20 gallons or 25 gallons, the <laughs> the barrel was full. And it's it's a three or four inch line that fills the barrel and it is, it comes out fast. 50 gallons fills in under a minute and I'm holding the hose <laughs> over the barrel. And, and so the hose is, is just slightly bigger in diameter than the hole in the top of the barrel. And I'm like, shut it off, shut up. And it just instantly filled and I'm getting just covered. Yeah. And so, and there's I mean, no shut off <laughs> free, free shower. Like you said, yeah. but <laughs> But it sucks that we wasted the water, too. Yes. So it's like, you know. Yeah, we've kind of figured out the math on at that particular fill station. Like I said, there are different towns have different quantities and amounts. But at that particular station, you can actually punch in exactly how many gallons you want. I think we figured out it's either 25 or 27 gallons actually fills the 55-gallon drum because it gets you to that cutoff point of whatever you punch in. And then it still is draining from the hose and it pretty much fills the other half of the of the drum. Right. Yeah. That was fun and funny and we learned a lot. And then we switched to the 250 gallon um, containers and that's great. And that makes it less trips. But the problem then is as the snow started to come, that extra weight in the back of the truck or on a trailer made it harder for the vehicle to get up the hill with with the snow and the deeper the snow got the vehicle would sink in the snow because of the extra weight. So then we stepped down back down to the 55 gallon drum. And then we ultimately ended up transporting two five gallon buckets like every three days on average for about three months straight. Yeah, we were doing that. So five gallon buckets and then any like empty gallon water jugs that we had, we would, we just keep reusing and, um, those one gallon drugs are pretty handy, honestly, for like in the house or watering plants and stuff anyway. But yeah. yeah, it definitely has demonstrated to us how precious water can be and also how little we can actually get by with. Um, so, you know, one one of the reasons we don't have to haul a ton of water is that the only water we need here is drinking water, water for the animals, for us, for the plants, and then doing dishes. So we don't shower here um, and we don't do laundry here. Um, we're just not set up for that in the camper. Mike and I are both six feet tall or taller. So like that little shower in the camper is kind of a joke anyway. 
and we didn't want to deal with hauling enough water to be taking showers here as well. So we're fortunate to just have like a gym membership in town and we can shower there instead. And then Sunday is laundry day. Right. And then the other issue with showering here is what do we do with the gray water from the shower after we're done showering? We got to get rid of it somehow. Right. Which kind of leads us into our next topic for infrastructure that also had some unforeseen, uh, unplanned for expenses, which is that we, you know, we were planning to build an earth ship and we still are, but you know, part of that with being off grid was we were just going to do composting toilets, um, you know, use our gray water on different parts of the property, you know, just make sure we have good organic soaps, you know, nothing, not use any sort of chemicals or products that we wouldn't want to have on the property and be able to recycle our gray water as well. Um, but then when we started to investigate, um, we learned that that would not be an option. So composting toilets in our county and really in our state actually is not an option here in Colorado, even even though they're used in parts of Colorado by the state. Um, so that's been really, really frustrating. And Mike can kind of share more about that because he had done like a lot of research and we really thought we were on the right path with that to have like an engineered composting system put into our house. Yeah, I mean, the biggest benefit, there's a lot of fear associated with composting human feces and also gray water. I think there's less fear with the gray water but what, so if you, if you really do your research, in fact, the, the EPA published a brief, um, I don't want to quote what year it is. Cause I haven't, I haven't reread this in, in a couple of months, but it wasn't too long ago within five to 10 years ago, the EPA did a study, a long case study over several years. And they actually used the state of Colorado as one of the states that they did the case study on to really determine the pros and cons or the health risks or benefits to composting and gray water recycling. And it's a great read. If you like to nerd out with that kind of stuff, basically what it came down to was that a composting system, a gray water recycling system uses like one tenth of the amount of water that a traditional water flush toilet does and traditional waste of gray water. So in Colorado, especially, actually most of Colorado, there's, they've been in, in the hundred year drought this winter. They talked about us finally getting out of it with as much snow as we got, but there's still a, a tremendous amount of drought. So water's precious and we have to haul water, which that costs and a, a lot of time more than anything. So how can we conserve water as much as possible? Sarah, you mentioned about using good organic soaps, um, things like that. But what people don't think about is not just the soap. Uh, our, our bodies carry a lot of bacteria and things that are unhealthy to other humans or ourselves like E. coli. And so you can't just take that gray water that you shower or do your dishes with or wash your hands with and just pump it right out on the ground and water your plants with it because that that e coli and things can now then be picked up by the plants and then you reconsume them or your animals that don't have a good immune system to them can then pick them up and it could make them sick so you have to run your gray water through some kind of filtration system and there's lots of them out there i won't go into the details you can make them yourself but you got to run it through a filtration system and then you can use it to water your plants and even give drinking water for your animals and in some cases you can even reuse it for showering and drinking yourself depending on the quality of filtration system you have so the epa put out this this brief and basically they summed it up with this list of pros and cons kind of side by side traditional septic system and composting gray water recycling system and the risk or negatives and positives the 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 risk on the composting and gray water um, filtration system there was only like half a dozen negatives or risks listed and there was dozens of benefits 
listed. And then on the septic side, the exact same risks or negatives to the composting were listed, plus a whole bunch more negatives, which is the amount of wasted water and things like that. And the benefits were far less. And I really was shocked that that's what the EPA published, but it made sense. So the state of Colorado, what they did was they used all of the state park system in the state of Colorado, primarily all the remote parks. So for example, the, there's a state park at the bottom of the mountain here about, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes from us uh, off the highway. It's called Crawford State Park, Crawford Reservoir. And those toilets in that park are a composting system and a gray water filtration system. And then they, they studied it over years and that's where they came up with the pros and cons. So the Colorado State Health Department also concurred with this brief and agreed that it was beneficial and that there was no added health risk. But unfortunately, the counties, as far as we know, every county in the state of Colorado, they have their own independent separate health departments. Those counties have never accepted that and changed the law. And so you are required by law in order to build a dwelling, a living structure, a structure to live in, to have a septic system. And the way it was put to us when we were at the building department was, quote, you can have as many composting toilets as you want in your house, but you will not build your house or get a permit even issued unless you have an engineered septic system and installed. So you don't even have to hook up to it, but you got to pay for the engineering and you got to have the system installed. Right. So that was about $2,000 for the engineering. And then the components are broken into two for us too. We have, we'll have a septic system for the shop building, which actually is classified as an RV dump. And then it will connect into the main system that will also, which will then the house will be connected to. So the the system for just the shop building components are about $4,000. And then the components for the main house are going to be about $8,000. Plus we've got to get the equipment to do all the dirt work, digging it up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was an added expense that really, truly we did not anticipate on. I don't know that we've, I guess if I'd have, I'd have reached out, but we didn't even know what County we were going to live in until we bought the property. Right. We were so. looking all over. We didn't even know for sure we'd be in Colorado. So, right. Yeah. And that, and I know it's easy to sit back now and say, we should have researched more and done this and done that. But for anyone that's ever been shopping for land or houses, like, you know, that market moves really quickly. And so you know, and we're looking at multiple places at one time and trying to figure out what to make offers on. It just really wasn't possible to do, to research everything. Um, and so, yeah, we, and we thought we had done the research we needed to. We, we thought um, that by finding good composting setups that were, you know, engineered, you know, stamped by an engineer, you know, we thought, okay, we'll have to jump through some hoops and, and bring some really good legit plans to the planning department in order to get that approved. And we were ready to do that. Um, and instead we just got shut completely down and told like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You have to have septic no matter what. Um, that was pretty frustrating for sure, but we're getting it done. And, uh, that's kind of like the next big thing that we're working on the, on the property is getting that septic done and hooked up. So, well, the other thing too is, is eat, you could literally spend a lifetime researching just getting the information and cross-checking it and verifying it and talking to different people that have done different things in person. And at the end of the day, you got to make a decision to either shit or get off the pot. Right. Are you going to move forward and buy a place or are you going to spend years researching and then eventually never buying a place and and homesteading because you spent so much time just researching? Right. There, There has to be a balance. I mean, don't run off with zero info, but yeah, at some point you do have to go after your dreams, right? And you're going to hit roadblocks and maybe we can save you guys a couple of ours, but you're still going to have some of your own too. And they're Absolutely. hopefully they will be different, you know, new, new problems instead, but. And share them with us. Cause we'd like to hear about them. <laughs> yeah. And we'd like to share them with other people too. So we're starting to 
do more homesteader interviews and stuff. And I'm really excited for that too. And sharing, you know, different regions have different issues. You know, this, a lot of this probably, you know, obviously wouldn't be an issue in Tennessee. We, there, there's no walking through snow in Tennessee to get home. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the other thing for infrastructure that we can just kind of touch on really briefly um, with the camper is, you know, heating. Um, So for heat for us, for the camper and for cooking, you know, we're using propane. So we ended up just having several small to medium sized bottles that we would rotate through and get filled. Um, You know, having backups is good. I can't emphasize redundancy enough, especially on some of the other things we're going to talk about today as well. Um, Really look around for pricing though. Like I think that is one of the big things, you know, with propane, there's not a lot to talk about, but the pricing really, the the place closest to us was outrageous, like a dollar to a dollar 50 more per gallon for propane than, you know, the next town over. Um, and then we also found out that uh, there's like a local, you know, or not local, but a pretty big company that has locations in multiple cities across here. And the prices for them vary from city to city. Um, there was one day that, you oh, know, yeah. Mike went to a different location for the same company and was told, you know, before paying was told, yeah, it's totally the same price. And then it was almost double, I think. It was double. And, and I'm not afraid to say it's feral gas. They're nationwide. They're a huge propane supplier. The The location we were getting propane at is a feral gas owned location. It's not like uh, a privately owned location where feral gas fills their tank and then they resell it. So we were buying it direct for feral gas for about $250 a gallon. And then the location in the next biggest city, which is five times bigger than the city where we were getting it. They said it was the same price and it, it wasn't the same price. It was double. And so that was quite frustrating. Yeah. That definitely kind of knocked our budget around for the month. A little unexpectedly there was not, was not good, but um, yeah, propane overall hasn't really been too much of an issue for us other than just, you know, make sure you have enough bottles Um at some point, we'll get a larger tank up here, you know, once we have the house built or even the shop, and then that won't be as much of an issue. Um, but even with that, you know, our neighbors, you know, down the road from us have a large tank and that price varies throughout the year. So demand is high right before winter. Everyone wants to get their tanks filled up. So if you can manage to fill it up sooner, if you know you have a big enough tank that you can fill it up in summer and that'll still get you through winter, that might be something to think about. Um, for us, we were just doing, you know, small bottles that were sizes that we could handle and just had an abundance of them that we would just, you know, throw all in the back of the truck and go, go get filled up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that worked pretty well. Um, so I think the last big kind of infrastructure thing we want to talk about today, and it's definitely a big topic would be power. Um, a couple small things. So you guys know we're, you know, we're on solar, but a couple small things I would mention, is that if you're going to do anything with like a camper, um, we ended up getting a second battery for the camper and running them in series. And then you can also get a battery tender to help charge the batteries up if they start to get too low. Um, I think that has worked out pretty well for us because for a while before we even had the solar up, we were basically just running off a generator constantly, um, which gets pretty expensive. But being able to rely sometimes on the camper batteries too was also really good. But that one battery by itself when we were having to run the heat uh, was not enough to get us through the night completely. So that second battery was really helpful. And then the other thing, in addition to the second camper battery, um, I mentioned redundancy a few minutes ago. So when we were running off of one generator, we did have that generator kind of die and fail on us one night. And it was like pretty late on a Sunday night and we had animals and we were kind of freaking out because we needed heat for us, obviously, but then also heat lamps for like our pigs outside. And that turned into like a pretty hairy night where we were, you know, up online looking, trying to see where can we buy another generator right now? Everything was closing within like an hour. Um, and we're two hours from like the biggest city that has like a Lowe's or a Home Depot. So that got to be a little hairy. Um, luckily we were able to get someone to go buy one for us, um, using like, uh, transferring like money to them. And then uh, we eventually got that first one working again and decided to then keep both of them so that we would have a backup. And you would think that would be great. Two generators, what could go wrong? And we even had one night, though, where both generators went down on the same night. So that's been interesting. 
Yeah, that was kind of a fluke. So that the first generator that we got um, wasn't quite, I can't remember what the output is on it, um, but it, it, it wasn't enough. It was getting us by, but it wasn't enough. And we knew that we were going to have to get a bigger one. And it, it, it failed because the exhaust, uh, the pipe that comes off the engine that goes into the muffler just literally snapped off from vibration. It was a poor manufacturer issue that was still under warranty and they were awesome. They totally took care of us. Uh, the brand is champion. I, I think overall it gets kind of a bad rap, but we've had great, great luck with champion generators overall and their customer service and warranty was phenomenal. So we, we bought that night. We Lowe's was still open. We contacted, actually it's my ex-wife and um, she's in Grand Junction and we asked her if she could run over to Lowe's and we transferred money to her and she went over to Lowe's and bought a craftsman, the only thing they had in stock. And then we met her halfway here to get the generator and get back up here. And, and the, re the reason why it was so important is because it was, it was below freezing. It was getting down to the single digits. So then we ran that craftsman for, it was right at about like 25 days right before the 30 day warranty right before the 30 day warranty and it went down and it went down because it had a carbon dioxide um, sensor sensor on it so that way people won't use them indoors and this is sitting outside it only had a roof over it nothing around it and the the carbon dioxide sensor was tripping and wouldn't the generator wouldn't run. It, it ran for like five minutes and then it shut off and then it wouldn't run again. So luckily Sarah keeps receipts and stuff like that. And so she kept the receipt and we drove back to junction. We returned it. And then our, so on our way back from returning that generator at Lowe's, we stopped at tractor supply and we bought another champion. This one was a dual fuel. So it runs on propane or gas and it's twice the size of the original one. And we thought propane, great, because it's $2.50 a gallon, as where gas is $3 and, and, and got up to over $4 a gallon there for a while. So we got that generator, and it was running really good on gas. And then when we tried running it on propane, the bottles would freeze. It would run for about 30 minutes, and then the bottle would freeze, and the valve would freeze at the top of the bottle. So then we couldn't run propane. We started researching it, looking into it, and we found that the generator is only designed to run at a max altitude of 6,000 feet, and we're at just over 8,000 feet. So we were looking on the Champion website, and they sell a kit for high altitude, and it was like 125 bucks for the kit for the high altitude, and it's super simple. It took me about 10, 15 minutes to put the parts in, but the great thing about it is when we called Champion, they sent us the parts for free. They were like, oh yeah, sure. No problem. We'll just send you the parts. So when we put those parts in, we were actually filling the generator. It's a six gallon tank and we were running six gallons and it would go about 10 hour, uh, eight, about, excuse me, about nine hours. And then it would die on six. So we get about nine hours of use on six gallons. When we changed out those parts, we were getting almost 12 hours on six gallons. So it really did improve our fuel economy, which was great. And like I said, they sent us the parts for free. They paid for shipping, everything. It didn't cost us anything. Super easy to put the parts in. So I say Champion's a good a good product. It's a, it's a good value. It's a good company. So consider that. Obviously do your research and check reviews and things like that. Keep in mind that, that most people only complain, but not a lot of people talk about the positive. So you're always going to see more negative reviews than you do positive. So redundancy and generators. So we got the replacement part for the little generator, which they also gave us for free mm -hmm. because it was it was a manufacturer defect. And now we have two generators that we can run. Um, it, it, you know, during wintertime, because we, we were only on half capacity of our solar system, we would drain our batteries too fast. So we would overnight for to save our batteries and not... Um, kill our batteries every night we we chose to just go ahead and run the generator overnight and we would put about four or five gallons in it and just let it run out and that was really just to protect our batteries from getting drained too low too repetitively 
But if you are in a situation where we were in the very beginning, where you're running a generator for 12 hours a day every day because you don't have your solar yet, then it's nice to have that one backup generator just in case your one goes down. And two, you can run them you know, every other day. So you would run one generator today and then the next day run the next generator, the next day run the next. So you're not putting that excessive wear and tear because they're not designed to be run 12 hours a day every day. They're really only to be designed to be run for a couple hours here and there for camping, things like that, storms and your power goes out. But to run one 12 hours a day every day for for two, three months, it's not practical. It's going to break down. I don't care what brand it is. Yeah. And if you're running it that much, uh, make sure you're doing the maintenance on it. Uh, make sure you're changing the oil and stuff. That's actually how we even found out about the high altitude um, changes that we could make to the generator was we started having some issues with it. And so we started flipping through the manual trying to figure out like what's going on. And, you know, just saw like a random thing in, in the parts manual about like a high altitude kit. And so we're looking at each other like, oh, like why didn't we know that this existed? So if you're at high altitude, something to look into and and it definitely did improve our fuel economy too. Yeah, absolutely. And and the oil, you know, generators, the, the engines, the way way they're designed and I'm not an expert on it, but they definitely burn oil. I've, I've had a lot of generators over the years, you know, even growing up as a kid, we, we went camping all the time. In fact, that was a champion generator when I was a kid that my parents bought used, my dad rebuilt it and it, it worked forever. It worked great. So I'll get off on the champion thing, but <laughs> the checking the oil, it, it's going to burn oil. They, they're, they're not like your car, even cars burn oil sometimes, but generators more likely to burn oil. So we actually set an alarm in my phone. It goes off every Monday at 10 AM and it just says check generator oil. So we got into the habit of doing that every Monday, check the oil, top it off a little bit. And then once a month I would auction, uh, add, um, an oil additive we would use the lucas brand oil additive to help with just extra wear and tear on the generator and we haven't had a single problem since they run flawlessly yeah they've been really great and expensive to run and hopefully next year we'll be in a better situation with our solar um, oh, absolutely. but also they were really lifesavers and like mike said we're not sponsored by champion or anything but both of the ones we have now we're super happy with so yeah um, but yeah, so the last kind of thing for infrastructure that we want to cover would be the solar power, um, because that's really the only option out here. They, you know, trying to run lines and be on the grid, which isn't something we want to do anyway, but financially it would just not, there would be no way it would not be feasible. Um, so we did a lot of research on this beforehand. Um, Mike actually did a lot of this research. Um, so Even give before him... we bought property, we were researching a yeah. year in advance, a, a year and a half prior, I was researching solar yeah. for the Tennessee house. Yeah, that was, so this is one of those nice things where you can have a lot of things up in the air. We didn't know where we would end up, but we knew we're going to need solar. So, you know, you can start working on that process at any point and start researching what you're going to need, figuring out what your actual needs are in terms of, you know, wattage and things like that for like how you know, how big of a system are you going to need to build? So we're really fortunate here in that because of the temperatures and the lack of humidity relative to Tennessee, you know, we're not planning to have um, air conditioning like in our future home. So like that's a huge savings um, that we don't have to budget for a solar uh, system big enough to accommodate that. Um, But Mike did a lot of research on that so that we actually ordered our system before we moved out here, um, had it delivered to a friend's house um, about two hours away in a big city here uh, so that we could just pick it up as soon as we actually got out here. Yeah. So solar is interesting. Uh, the, one, the, the technology is advancing so fast and at such a rapid rate that it's hard to keep up on it. And this is something that you do for a living and you do it all day, every day. It changes rapidly. That's a good thing because prices go down better technology comes out. So we have better life expectancy for batteries and inverters and things like that. But one of the first challenges is they don't calculate the amount of output of power on a solar system the way they do for a house that's on the grid. So you got to do your research on that. And there's some simple formulas that you can do to calculate what you're going to need, but do some research on it. The next is 
um, weather weather conditions, overcast, and uh, things like that. And are you going to run your solar panels in parallel or in series? Because there's a big difference. You can run them either way, but if you run them parallel, then you run into issues where if one panel is slightly shaded through at, at a part of the day, it really kills your efficiency. So you knowing that kind of stuff. So do a lot of research. I will say that there's a couple of great YouTube pages. I cannot remember the name off the top of my head of the one guy that puts out a ton of great information. He's he's a younger guy, early, mid-20s, real nerdy. His name's Will, but I can't remember his last name. Yeah, Will something. And great information. He really breaks it down into simpler terms if you're if you're not savvy to electrical math and terminology he breaks it down into a way that you can understand his name is will prouse p-r-o-w-s-e on youtube so check him out really good information and he uses a company for a lot of his supplies called signature solar and I, i i suspect that that there's a little bit of marketing there where they're giving him stuff so he can create content and as a trade-off. So he's not paying for that equipment. He has said that they sent this to me, they gave this to me. So I don't think that that's an inaccurate guess. But anyways, um, Signature Solar is a huge company that's growing way too fast for their for their their britches, if that's the right word. They Their customer service and their follow-up sucks. You're not going to get anybody on the phone very often, if at all. It's going to be through email. And again, if you're not super savvy with nomenclature and the, the electrical math and terminology, it makes it really hard to troubleshoot an issue via email because you got to type all this out and explain it to them. And then they're reading it going, I have no clue what this person's talking about because they're not, they're calling it this. And if it's that, it can't be doing what they say it's doing. And, and because you might have the name of the part wrong or something. And then they email you back a day, two days, four days later, a week later. And again, they, when they do respond, they're responding with verbiage and nomenclature that is rather foreign to the the everyday average person. So doing your research is helpful because you'll learn some of that nomenclature. You'll be able to better understand and explain when you're running into an issue. But Signature Solar sucks for customer service. And I'm not afraid to say that. They, If, if you choose to shop with them, you'll, you'll probably get the best pricing and have the best selection of equipment. But you're not going to get the best customer service. They might have changed. Hopefully, maybe one of their employees hears this podcast and brings it up to them and they actually do make a change on it. But yeah, that was rather frustrating. So we we told I told them when we got our quotes, we want enough output to generate X number of, of electricity to run you know, these appliances in this situation put together a quote that includes every single piece of equipment, hardware, wire, everything that we need, turnkey, you ship it to us and we don't have to go to town or get online and order another single thing. And two of the problems that we ran into is, well, they sent us the quote and we, when we finally decided on which system we were going to go with, then we ordered it and we got it. When we got it, some items were backordered. And so we didn't get those items. And when they backorder items, they just cancel it. They don't They don't say, oh, it just came in stock. Here it is again. So we had to constantly watch the website to try and catch that item when it came in stock. And and that industry is is exploding so much that sometimes you they might get a new shipment in of, of the item that you need. And some, you know, 500 people are all looking for it and, and they've, already bought it up before you see it's available. So you really could be in a situation where you don't have what you need. The other thing is, is that they didn't include everything that we needed. Specifically, one part that comes to mind, which was the the one of the more frustrating things was there are, are breaker switches that go inside a breaker box, a breaker panel, or inside of a box, and it mounts inside there, or it's already mounted inside this box. 
And then there are breaker switches that don't go in a box at all. They aren't mounted in any kind of box. They're mounted on what's called a DIN rail. That's D-I-N rail. And it's an aluminum rail. It's shaped like a dovetail. If you know what like a dovetail joint is on wood. Those, they they sold us those breaker switches and and no DIN rail. And then when I called them and said, okay, well, I need the DIN rail. What's the part number? <laughs> Their response was, oh, we don't even sell them because most of our customers just get them off of Amazon. I said, okay, so what size is the DIN rail? And and they're all done in metric. Luckily, I have a machinist background, so I'm really good. And I have high-end, you know, micrometers and calipers. So I, I measure the 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 dovetail of the breaker. They didn't even know the size of it. And they couldn't tell me. So I measured the breakers and then I did the math, figure, you know, converted it and figured out exactly the size, got on Amazon, and it was pretty quick to find. A, a seven or eight inch DIN rail, because you only need one rail for the two breakers, so a six to eight inch, 10 inches, plenty rail, was like, like three or four bucks on Amazon. Now I get it. For them, they're like, oh, most of our customers buy them on Amazon. Well, if that's the case, at least know the information and when your customer when you sell a customer a kit put in on the notes or put on the invoice or in the email and say hey by the way you're going to need a din rail for this and here's the size you need you you can even include a part number on amazon here's the amazon link or amazon has a commercial account where they could buy din rails in bulk they could buy these din rails in bulk for probably a buck to two bucks a piece turn around and sell them for 9.99 and I would be willing to bet. I know I wouldn't complain. I would have said, okay, include it. 10 bucks for a rail for the breakers? Done. Easy. I wouldn't even question it. And most of their customers probably wouldn't question it because they wouldn't know any better. So I just felt like that was a huge failure on their part. I mean, a huge failure. Because again, we're in a real room. You can't buy a DIN rail in the next biggest city, which is a city of, of two or 300,000 people. You can't buy a DIN rail there. We called every single electrical supply commercial supply company, every solar supply company, and nobody had them. We had to order it online. We got it from Amazon, but that was another three days, four days for us to get that rail that I had to sit and wait before I could put the breakers up to be able to actually connect the wires. So it's a setback and it was frustrating because that is such a simple little thing that, that is financially it's so cheap. Why would you let your customers down by not providing that information or that part? So that's, that's one thing. Um, other things too is, is wire. There's a lot of wire between your inverters and your breakers and your fuses and your batteries that you need that isn't, wasn't supplied in the kit. So we then had to get that wiring and it's not just simple wiring like Romex that goes from, from your breaker panel to your, your receptacle or your light or your switch. This is is heavy gauge, like the wires on the battery for your vehicle. And you need a special tool and special fittings that go on the end of the wire that you crimp down. And again, you know, you can get that stuff at Home Depot and most electrical supply places, but the nearest Home Depot is an hour and a half away. And so it was, again, frustrating that they didn't at least provide the, the information, say this is not included in the kit because they specifically said, and when we requested the quotes, they specifically said, this is everything that you need. And we said, make sure that there's everything we need in the quote. So that was a huge learning curve. Uh, I think luckily I'm pretty handy and I, I like to research that kind of stuff. Electrical is my weakness. That's because I my dad's an electrical engineer and I grew up spending my summers wiring houses because that was a side gig. And I never paid attention to any of it. I hated it. And I was just like, I'm not going to learn any of this. I don't care. And so that now when I ask my dad for help, he, 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 he gives me a complete, a complete like semester long course with PowerPoints and, and textbooks. And, and I, and, and again, I tune it out and I get frustrated because I'm like, dad, just, just give me the answer. Tell me what I need. But he won't do that because he's trying to teach me a lesson. So lesson learned. <laughs> um, I'll pay attention and I have paid attention. I've learned a lot about solar power. One of the things that we did, we talked about, we've mentioned before, we're only running on half capacity of our system. Now that is on purpose because 
we don't have a permanent location set yet for where our solar array or solar panels that's another nomenclature thing solar panels are called a solar array so when you're talking to somebody in the industry they're not going to say solar panels they're going to say solar array um we we we're in a camper we're going to build the shop we're going to the, the camper is then going to get moved into the shop the we can't put the solar panels on the side or the roof of the shop yet because it's not built we need to be able to move the camper and unplug everything and plug it right back in so we intentionally only put up half of our solar array we're running on that with half the batteries and only one of the two inverters so that puts us at a slight disadvantage during winter time especially as we learned it wasn't quite enough to get us by for three four days of weather before draining our batteries because the amount of heat lamps that we had to run which those are a huge source of uh, electrical draw. We had three heat lamps under the camper. We have a four season camper too, by the way, with straw bales stacked up with actually a two inch foam board, insulation foam board, and then straw bales stacked around the camper. And we still had three heat lamps underneath it to keep it from freezing. We had one heat lamp for the pigs. We had one heated water bowl for their water. Otherwise it would just be frozen or couldn't, fill it up and then freeze within an hour and then one heat lamp in the inverter battery shed because you can't freeze those batteries if you do freeze them for a prolonged period of time it really kills life expectancy so we're running a lot of juice there and we couldn't we, we really couldn't risk going three or four days without having a good sunny day so in hindsight we should have probably had all of our batteries hooked up and all of our solar panels. But again, the problem with that is then we go to move the camper. It would take us a day to two days to then take those solar panels down and move those solar panels, rehook back up. So we knew in the future when we move the camper, we would be down. We wouldn't have power for a day or two. So we chose to put half the solar array up, half the batteries, only using one of the two inverters. Now, next week when we move the camper, because we're going to be moving the camper, to its final resting place, so to speak. <laughs> and we'll already have the other solar rack up. We'll have the other panels up and we'll literally unplug the solar array from the inverters and the battery bank in that little shed. We'll move the camper, we'll move the shed and we'll plug it right back in and it's back up and running. No downtime. Then once the shop building's fully up, we'll take and put up the other half of the solar array that's not being used on the shop We'll unplug it from the temporary ones, plug it in, no downtime, then take those temporary at the other half that's being used temporarily, put it up on the side of the shop building, and then we'll be running at full capacity. So thinking and planning ahead for that kind of stuff is, again, kind of important. And then weighing the pros and cons of, well, if I'm running on half the system, is it going to be enough? And am I going to have to run the generator and that kind of stuff? So think about that stuff, plan. Yeah, Mike did a lot of research for this, and there was definitely a, a big learning curve. And I'm really grateful for him tackling all of this, because to me, it just felt really overwhelming. Um, especially, it, it felt a little scary to me just thinking that like, oh, if I wire these things incorrectly and then turn it on, we might blow up <laughs> thousands of dollars worth of equipment and ruin it. So I was really appreciative that Mike took this on. And um, there was a lot of work in addition to just all of the equipment that we bought and putting it together, it was also um, having to buy lumber and metal to build the frames to hold all the solar panels for the array. Um, he also had to build a shed to hold the batteries and the inverter. Um, there were a lot of different steps along the way. And, you know, I think that was part of the frustration too with the company where, you know, we thought we were getting a package of everything we needed. We ordered it before we even moved. It was here waiting for us. Um, you know, we knew, you know, Mike knew he'd have to build the shed, get the panels up, you know, build the frames for the panels. But, um, you know, every day that we didn't have those up was another day that we were having to spend money on gas for a generator and relying on that as our only source of power. So I know him venting and saying, you know, oh, it took three more days to get this one piece from Amazon that we had to buy. That doesn't sound like a big deal until it's weeks, uh, weeks are going by of just one delay after another. And, 
a million Home Depot trips and the cost of that and the time sink. And it was, you know, October 20th when we moved out here and, you know, literally, you know, not to make Game of Thrones jokes, but like winter is coming and we're trying to get the solar up and it was getting to be pretty frustrating and stressful for him, you know? Um, So yeah, I think definitely doing your research, really figuring out, you know, if you can get um, a full kit uh, for what, what you're trying to do. Um, and yeah, the educational factor of like, you know, once you get all the stuff and then how do you put it all together, those videos for that Will Prowse does, you know, those were extremely helpful, definitely more so than anything we were getting from the company itself. Um, Mike was able to find videos that matched up pretty closely to exactly the kind of system that we were getting and installing. And so that I think was really helpful. But even with that, there were still points where, you know, luckily his dad had that electrical background and he could call him and say like, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And is this going to be right? I know for me, like if it was just me on my own, I probably would have had to shell out money to someone. I I don't know if I could have gotten it all up and working by myself. I think it it, it looks, it was intimidating to me even. And I think it would be really intimidating to you having no real electrical experience or background. Yeah. But overall, it's it's pretty plug and play. There 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 you know you you need a special crimping tool and the little ends the well the big brass or copper ends that go on the wires. Other than that, a cordless screw gun and a flat blade screwdriver and a Phillips screwdriver is pretty much all you need. A electrical a, a utility knife mm-hmm. for stripping wire and electrical tape. But other than that, it's it's not that difficult. The The most difficult part is just making sure that you got all your wiring. Because if you do wire it wrong, you could have a catastrophic failure that, that destroys some, some very expensive equipment. Yeah. But if you do your research and you really follow the steps and just, just double check, triple check before you actually flip a breaker on, it's not that bad. Anybody could do this. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt in my mind that you could do it if you just had a little confidence in yourself and, and, and you read the, the, the information and, and, and looked at the wiring schematics, you, you could figure it out. I, I guess what I'm getting at is that don't be intimidated by it. Don't feel like you have to hire an electrical contractor to hook up your solar system because that's a huge expense. Now, if you do hire an electrical contractor, that's great. I'm all for supporting contractors and local business, but when you're doing a homestead, you don't, necessarily have disposable income unless you're coming from you know you're you're a retired tech mogul and and you've got all the money in the world to have this done so so if you can do it yourself which anybody can do it if they just apply themselves and put a little bit of effort into learning anybody can do it so you don't have to necessarily spend another ten thousand dollars on a contractor save that ten thousand dollars and put that into you know, another part of your house that's going to be uh, that that extra creature comfort thing that would just make your life a whole lot better, you know, for the next 20 years. Yeah, I will say a good maybe in between option that we found and we, we didn't actually end up doing this was um, as we were looking at different options and kits and things like that, we reached out to someone that did installs and he was willing to basically let us pay him like an hourly consulting fee to look over what we were thinking about buying. Um, so I think I might've done that if I'd been on my own and just feeling kind of tenuous about it. Um, that may, may be a good option for someone if you're kind of like me and feeling a little bit intimidated by it or really like worried about throwing that breaker and <laughs> having everything go wrong. So yeah. Or, or even get some contractors to come out and give you quotes and ask them when they're doing it. Say, hey, look, I want to I want to be the laborer. I, w- I want to do 80% of the work myself and just consider me your 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 employee, for lack of a better words, so I can learn. And it really is good to even if you pay a contractor to do it, you're going to have issues down the road where things are going to go wrong. And if you don't have an intimate knowledge of how your system works and what wire goes to where when that does happen you're you're hamstrung you 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 are not self-sufficient anymore you're reliant and dependent on having a contractor come out and and fix it for you so even if you do hire a contractor ask them if you can participate in the installation process and learn from it 
because you're going to benefit from it. And maybe you save a little bit of money because that's one less person they bring out to help them. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I've said to Mike in the past, I don't want to have anything on our property that I don't know how to use or how to how to fix or operate. And we've had mornings where the solar panels uh, or like the inverter, we were getting error messages on or something. And if he was working on something else, you know, I was in there like looking it up, trying to figure it out because, um, you know, what if he's gone? You know, there have been times where he's had to go away on a trip or something. And what am I going to do? Just sit there with no power for, you know, four days until he gets back. Like that's silly. So I think it's good for everyone on the homestead to know how everything works. Absolutely. I mean, the whole point is being self-sufficient. So don't put yourself in a situation where you're not self-sufficient. Yeah. And I think that includes even within your own family. Like it's tempting to divide and conquer, I think, on certain tasks. But then you have to think about, well, what if that person isn't around and something's going wrong? Um, How are you going to handle it? So, um, yeah. So I think in terms of infrastructure, just overly research your options. Um, And like most projects, uh, just understand it's probably going to cost twice as much as you thought. And potentially take twice as long to get it done. And if you can factor that in and kind of just roll with it, then things will work out okay. Yep. Um, Just stay determined. Stay focused. Don't get yourself beat up or beat down by whatever comfort crisis you have at the moment. Just just stay dedicated and know that you're going to figure it out. You're going to work through it. And you're going to be so much more rewarded later when you do work through it and you wake up the next morning and you're in physical pain because it was extremely (laughs) difficult to do whatever it was you had to do physically. But but you wake up smiling and happy with yourself and with the life that you're building. Exactly. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap it up for tonight. That's a good positive note. So. Yeah, so I hope this helps you guys thinking about infrastructure and challenges as you approach homesteading for yourself, whether you're starting a new homestead or just working on projects at your current land. Um, But yeah, so I think our next episode, we'll start talking about some of the big projects that we've been working on together um, beyond the septic, but like working on the shop building, other infrastructure things for like the animals. But I hope in the meantime that you guys are all doing well out there. Uh, Summer's you know, we've kind of jumped from spring almost straight to summer here, I think. It kind of starting to feel that way. And we're definitely keeping busy with lots of projects. Uh, we just planted a bunch more seeds before we recorded this podcast, too. So hopefully we'll have the garden going here pretty shortly. And we're definitely happy to be out of winter finally. But in the meantime, you guys can check out foxandelder.com for all our herbal offerings. We've got a lot of great stuff up in the shop right now. And we'll be adding more seasonal summer products as we go, including the summer solstice herbal box. But yeah, follow us over at Fox and Elder on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all the good places. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open. Mm-hmm.